I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, or you can follow along in the reading on the screen. Luke chapter 4. This is the account of the temptation of Jesus. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, add a detail that is unique that we don't find in all three. They're basically the same story, but they're just little details. So, for example, uh, this passage that I will read says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and Mark puts it more strongly that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. It's a very important, uh, very important event in the life of Christ. And uh, I will go ahead and <clears throat> tell you up front how I intend to approach this today. First of all, I don't intend to give a careful explanation of the temptations of Jesus today, but a general introduction. For at least one more week, and maybe more than one week, <clears throat> we will look at the temptations themselves. But today we're going to start off with my asking and answering, what is temptation? And then secondly, why was it necessary for Jesus to be tempted? Thirdly, <clears throat> what were the temptations that were thrown at Jesus? So we'll look at them in general, not in particular. What were the temptations? How was he tempted? And then number four, how did Jesus meet these temptations? What was his response? Finally, how does all this tie to the resurrection? So most of the sermon is going to be thinking about the temptation of Jesus, but I think that it has the potential to give a fresh appreciation for us as we consider the resurrection, that it was this man who was tempted and successfully withstood the temptations who was raised from the dead. Let me read the text, and then we'll get into those things. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority. And their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
first of all, let's think about what is temptation. Last week, I was uh, visiting my sister who lives in Williamsburg, Kentucky. And uh, I I would gather from looking at the the houses and the traffic around Williamsburg, that there's probably an unusually high concentration of coon hunters that live in Williamsburg, Kentucky. A noble, a noble breed of humans. <clears throat> so I was walking on the road around Williamsburg, walking with my red bone coon hound. And it was, a, it was a road that was very curvy, very dangerous place to stop. But uh, <clears throat> as I was walking, there was a man who stopped his pickup truck right beside me on this road. And he said, rolled down his window, he said, is that a red bone? I said, yes, it is. He said, well, I haven't seen a dog like that around here since I was a kid. Have you got another one? I said, no, but she came out of Harlan County, which is not far from there. Now, that's the end of the true story. Now I'm going to embellish the story (laughs) for the sake of illustration. Suppose this guy says to me, I'll give you $1,000 for that dog. I'd have thought, man, you know, I'd like to sell the dog. But... Carol and the girls would be upset with me if I sold the dog for a thousand dollars. I said, I don't think so. And then what if he said, I'll give you twenty-five thousand dollars in cash for that dog right now? I said, hand it over, buddy. Here's the leash. <laughs> now, <clears throat> just bear that in mind for a second and suppose that I was walking down that same road, not with Belle the Coonhound, but with Naomi, my 21-year-old daughter. And uh, just to make the story a little more fun, let's suppose that we're having a fuss. And a guy pulls up beside us and he says, that sure is a pretty girl you got there. I said, yes, she's my daughter. He says, I'll give you a million dollars if you let me spend the night with her. I'd say, you better get out of here before you get hurt, son. So in both of those stories, there was a temptation that was presented. I'm going to give you money for something that you value. That's the temptation. In one of those instances, that temptation was met with an answer from me. I want $25,000 more than I want this dog. And so I gave, in to the, I gave in to the temptation. But in the other case, when it had to do with my daughter, I never even considered it. There was nothing inside of me that said, I want a million dollars more than I want my daughter. Now, in the Bible, the word temptation is used almost exclusively from the perspective of the guy in the truck. The guy in the truck is, is putting a deal. You know, it takes a long time to earn $25,000, he might have said. But I'll give you a shortcut to earning $25,000. All you got to do is sell me that dog. And, uh, he, but he was making the same sort of, the same sort of proposition when he offered to, to hire my daughter for one night. And, uh, but there was, 
from the perspective of the Bible, temptation is something that happens, happens to you. <clears throat> now, in, <clears throat> in our way of speaking, we sometimes say, <clears throat> I was tempted to take him up on that offer for the dog. But that's not the way that it's used in the Bible. That's, but that is the way that we use it. And, uh, so we need to be clear when we're talking about the temptation of Jesus. He was assailed. So Satan is like the guy in the truck. And he's saying, <clears throat> I can offer you a shortcut on how to get the things that you've come here to do. And so he was offering shortcuts to Jesus but in Jesus, Jesus is like me in the second example. There was nothing inside of him that answered to it and said, hey, you know, that's kind of, that's tempting. That sounds like a good deal to me. Jesus had the response to all of these temptations that I had when the guy in the illustration offered to, to hire my daughter for a million dollars for one night. He's like, are you crazy? You better get out of here before you get hurt. In fact, Jesus does tell him, get behind me, Satan. And so, <clears throat> temptation is an illegitimate shortcut to a goal that is usually legitimate. I mean, the, it can be illustrated by this story. Was it legitimate for Jesus to satisfy his hunger? Yes, it was. And one of the other Gospels tells us that after Satan had left him, that God sent angels to minister to him. And I can imagine that they spread a feast for Jesus to satisfy his hunger. But Satan is, Satan is trying to put doubt in Jesus' mind and saying, look, God is not going to take care of you. You've got to take matters into your own hands here. And if you do, then your hunger can be satisfied. It's perfectly natural for you to be hungry and to want to have a meal. And here's a way that it can happen. And you don't need God to help you with it. And so that was an illegitimate shortcut to a legitimate goal. And then, <clears throat> and then the second uh, temptation, as, as it is mentioned here, <coughs> in Matthew and Mark, the pinnacle of the temple comes second, and then showing the whole world in an instant comes third. And uh, I, I think that Matthew and Mark probably are giving the right, the right order of things because it's at the end of being shown the whole world that, that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and it says, and Satan left him for a time. But in the account that I just read in Luke, the second temptation is Jesus has shown all the kingdoms of the world. Now, does Jesus deserve to have the adoration of all the kingdoms of the world? Yes, he does. And uh, the Lord has promised, I am going to give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And we read in the book of Revelation how that there's a song in heaven that says the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. But the method of Christ attaining the nations of the world is through his suffering and dying on the cross. And Satan says, I'll give you a shortcut. All you've got to do is bow down and worship me, and then I'm going to arrange things so that the kingdoms of the world will become yours. It's an illegitimate shortcut to a legitimate goal. And the same thing with uh, tempting Jesus. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And then everybody will say, oh my goodness, did you see? He jumped off the temple, he, uh, the pinnacle of the temple, and he never got hurt. He just floated down to the ground at the end. This must be the Christ. Now, does Jesus deserve to be recognized as the Christ, the Son of God? Yes, he does. 
But throwing yourself off the pinnacle of the temple was not the way that it was supposed to happen. And so Satan usually uses the same method of temptations with us. He will say, you know, you deserve to have this. And it may be true. Here is a shortcut for the way that you can get it. And virtually every sin can be described as a shortcut to a legitimate goal. Satan has not created any pleasures. All the pleasures that exist have been created by God. But God also has ordained the means by which we are to enjoy those pleasures. So, for example, the, the, the pleasures of physical intimacy, that's God's idea. And God says, get married. If you want to enjoy the pleasures of intimacy, get married. Satan says, eh, you don't have to make that big commitment. There are other ways that you can enjoy physical intimacy without doing it God's way. You see, that's an illegitimate shortcut to a legitimate goal. And so that's basically what temptation is. But an important thing to remember is that in Christ, there was nothing inside of him that said, oh man, you know, I'd kind of like to do that. I'd, I'd kind of like to, to do that sin. So when, when he was tempted, you mustn't think that he was holding back. Boy, I'd really like to do this sin, but I, I better not do it. God will hurt me if I do. That's not the way that Jesus was tempted. He was tempted by the devil, but there was no answer in him. So uh, to give you just one final example, suppose that I had a blowtorch up here and I was going to see what things are uh, impervious to flame. And so I, I took a blowtorch and I, I put it up against this. That's glass or plastic. It, let's say it's glass. You know, I hold, I hold the blowtorch there for a minute. It just makes a little spot. on It doesn't catch fire. But then I say, well, let's, let's check to see if this step will catch fire. So I hold the blowtorch blow down there. It starts to smoke. And the carpet starts to melt. And pretty soon a little, little fire comes up. Because there's something inside of that that answers to the fire. Let's say that I had a block of granite up here. I took the blowtorch and I held it up against that block of granite. It might not even make a mark on the block of granite. Because there's nothing in there to answer that says, oh, I want to be burned. But... There's something in the carpet. There's something in dried pine needles that says, yeah, I will respond to this. So when Jesus was tempted, he was like that block of granite. There was nothing in him that said, boy, I would really find pleasure in sinning. But he was, nevertheless, he had the torch, the blowtorch of temptation applied to him. But he never said, I'd really like to do this. Now, there are some people... I think that what I've just said about Jesus being impervious to temptation uh, and that he did not want to sin, they say, well, that kind of lessens the value of his obedience, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it more obedient if you want to do something and you don't do it than if you don't want to do it at all? Well, let me give you, especially you ladies, uh, an illustration. Let's suppose that you ask your husband, honey, are you ever... Are you ever tempted by other women? And here is answer A, and then I'll give you answer B. And then ask you, which one would you prefer? Honey, are you ever tempted by women? And he says, well, to be honest with you, there's this hot little number of the office that I'm telling you, she is stacked. Whew. She is so good looking. She wears perfume, and uh, man, her hair is always fixed, and... 
but I've never done anything with her. And because uh, I'm, I'm true to you and uh, I love you, but she is really a nice looking woman. That's answer A. Here's answer B. Well, you know, to be honest with you, hon, I'm so satisfied with your love, I just can't imagine being with another woman. Now, which answer would you prefer? (laughs) Obviously, you prefer answer B. So, which kind of Savior do you want? Do you want a Savior who's like, oh, man, I'd really like to sin, but... I got this Christ thing going on. I can't sin. Uh, I'd love to. Maybe someday. Or would you have a Christ who says, No, I'm not going to sin. That's ridiculous. That's repulsive. No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. And uh, the kind of Savior that we have is the kind of Savior who is not inflammable with the temptations that the devil was throwing at him. So that's some important information about what is temptation. Now, the second thing to think about is, why was it necessary for Christ to be tempted? Because this really is an essential part. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it comes immediately after he has been baptized, and the voices come from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. So in both of these, in all three Gospels, the temptation immediately follows after God has announced. I don't know how aware Satan was of where Jesus was and whether or not Jesus really was the Christ. Just don't know. But it was very obvious after, at the baptism, uh, the, the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. A voice comes from heaven. Then there's no doubt this is the one that has been prophesied to come and to bruise my head. And so I'm going to do all that I can, Satan thinks. I'm going to do all that I can to disqualify him for the work that he has been sent to do. And so I'm going to, I'm going to try to tempt him to sin. After all, I have been successful at this once before. Now we're answering the question, why is it necessary that Christ be tempted? And here is an important principle that you get big and plain in your mind. God deals with the human race not primarily as individuals, but primarily through representative heads. And there have been only two. The first representative head was Adam, the first man. And uh, Adam and his wife Eve were placed in a garden, and uh, there they had access to an idyllic life, and there was only one tree that they were not allowed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, some people think, well, why, why would God give them that one rule? Knowing, knowing human nature, humans are going to want to do the one thing that they've been told not to do. Well, at that time, human nature was not quite composed like that. That usually is true. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came to life, came to me, sin sprang to life and I died. There's something in most of us that, are, that is rebellious that says, if you tell me not to do something, you just hide in the bushes and see whether or not I do it. You know, I'm, that, that's why you're forbidding me to do that. 
But that's a result of our, our sinful and rebellious nature. Adam and Eve were not like that. Putting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden was a way of saying to them, you're happy, my humans, you're happy, but your happiness is dependent not upon yourself and not upon your world, it's dependent upon me. And as a way of reminding you of this truth, I'm telling you there's something that you're not allowed to do. Don't do this. Because I, uh, I, I am the source of your happiness. So, so don't disobey me and you'll continue to be happy. Well, we read a few minutes ago from Genesis chapter 3 how that Satan in the form of a serpent comes and he successfully tempts the woman and the man to disobey God. And as a result of their disobedience, remember, God deals with the human race through representative heads. As a result of their disobedience, every human being who descends from Adam and Eve in the ordinary way sinned in Adam and, uh, and fell in him. And so there were fundamental changes that took place, fundamental changes that took place between our relationship with God. Before sin, God would come down and walk with the, uh, the humans in the cool of the day. Now when God comes down, Adam and Eve hide themselves. They're, they're afraid of God. They're trying to get away from God. And so there was a fundamental change in the relationship. There was also a fundamental change in the way that humans thought and felt. And uh, so that now there was awakened in us a desire to sin so that when temptation comes to us, there is, we're like pine needles. There is something that is uh, liable to be inflamed with temptations that come to us. And so, and that has happened to everybody who descends from Adam and Eve in the ordinary way. Now, I say everyone who descended in the ordinary way because there is only one major exception to that. And that one major exception is Jesus Christ. So Jesus did not come into the world in the ordinary way. He was a descendant of Adam and Eve through Mary. So he was completely human. But he had been conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he had not descended from Adam and Eve in the ordinary way. And therefore, Jesus was not born with, with the dry pine needles inside of him. He was not born with that predisposition to be inflamed. And throughout the first 30 years of his life, he had successfully avoided all sin. So that when he's baptized, God the Father says, I have been watching you all of these years, and this is my son, and I am pleased with him. So far, so good. And Jesus is the second representative man. So, in order for Jesus to fulfill the responsibility that he was given, he had to successfully resist and repel the attack that had plunged our first representative head into sin. So, it's on the same principle. So, the first representative head, Adam succumbed to the temptation, and now here's our second representative head. He also has to be tested, and this passage of Scripture tells us that he passed the test. And so, in the book of Hebrews, I, I read to you, we read in our second Scripture reading, 
I point something out to you. Let me quote it to you and, and point it out to you again. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that through death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Now, our Savior had to be a complete human because the Son of God in himself cannot die. But since the wages of sin is death, then if we're going to be forgiven by a Savior, that Savior has to be able to die. And so it was important that he be completely human, capable of death. But there's something else in that passage of Scripture that I, that I read to you a few minutes ago from Hebrews chapter 2. It says, It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, and here's what I told you to pay attention to, make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. That he would make the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. And you say, well, Jesus never had any sin. How could he be made perfect? When we think of perfect, we have a tendency to think of going from a sinful, messed up state into a sinless, orderly state. But that's not always the way the word perfect is used. And especially when it applies to Jesus. It means that he went from a condition in which he was not yet qualified to a condition where he was fully qualified to do the work that he was sent for. So, you know, if I, I've got apple trees that bloom in my yard, and right now, you know, there's apple blossoms, pretty little pink blossoms, and you go out there and you smell them, there's a, there's a, a beautiful order, a beautiful odor to them. They, they're just all that an apple blossom should be in early April. But that's not the ultimate goal of that apple blossom. So I go out there in about three or four weeks, and there's a little tiny apple about the size of a, of a dime on there. And that apple is all that it should be in early May, but it's not yet perfect. And then I watch it through the summertime, and in July and in August, it continues to get bigger and rounder, but... But then it's not until September or October that that apple is completely filled out, full of juicy sweetness, just turned that beautiful red color. That's when it is what it was meant to be. All along, it was, it was a blossom when it should have been a blossom. It was a little tiny apple when it should have been a little tiny apple. But it wasn't perfect until the end of the summer. And that's the way it was with Jesus. When he was a little two-year-old boy, he was the best little two-year-old boy you ever did see. But he was not yet perfect for, to do the work of salvation. When he was a 12-year-old boy, he was the most intelligent, well-behaved 12-year-old boy you ever did see. But at that time, he was not yet perfect for the work of salvation. And it wasn't until he had gone through the suffering, which includes this temptation... And ended with the suffering of the cross and the death of the cross. It wasn't until then that God raised him from the dead and said, Now, perfect. Just exactly what you need to be in order to represent your people and reconcile them to me. And so for Jesus, he had to be tempted because God does things on orderly principles of justice. Our innocence was lost through our representative head succumbing to temptation. Therefore, our paradise will be regained through the second representative head successfully resisting temptation. 
And uh, so that's why Jesus had to be, that's why Jesus had to be tempted, because he is the last Adam, the last representative head of the race. Everybody in this room, you are represented either by the first Adam or by the second Adam. In order to be represented by the first Adam, all you need to do is just be born in the normal way, which all of us were. In order to be represented by the second Adam, you must be born again. You must be born again. And uh, to those who received him, to those who received Christ, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. And so if you want to be represented by Jesus, repent of your sin, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then what he has done on behalf of sinners will be credited to you. Your sins will be paid for by your head. Your righteousness will be provided for by your head. Christianity is the only religion in the world by which we are, we get to go to a good place when we die because of the good things that someone else has done. And that someone else is Jesus Christ, our representative head. And so he had to be tempted. So we've seen what is temptation. We've seen secondly, why is it that Jesus had to be tempted? Now let's look at, look at the temptations, just very briefly, look at the temptations that he was confronted with. And in general, I, I think that there's an indication in the Scripture that he was tempted throughout the 40 days by the devil, but in much the same way that you and I are tempted. So he plants thoughts into our heads. You know, not every, not every thought that comes into your head is something that you came up with. There are some people who, who struggle so unnecessarily because they will have bad thoughts come flashing into their mind. There's a passage in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, the hero of Pilgrim's Progress, is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And he's in a very weak spiritual condition at that point. And there are demons that come up and start whispering things in his ear. And that plunges him into an even deeper distress because the poor man thinks, That's me thinking those thoughts. But not every thought that flashes into your mind originates in you. Here's the question. Do you immediately repel that thought? Do you immediately put it out and say, no, I I do not receive that. I'm not going to take that. No, I I don't want to do that. That's, That's sin. Do you repel it that way? Or do you take it in and say, no, let's just think about this a little bit. Maybe it wouldn't hurt so much. So your reaction to those thoughts in some way determines where they have come from. So I, I think that the devil has, has been given permission to put thoughts in our heads, and, but that we do not have to succumb to them if, if you're a Christian. You do not have to succumb to them. With every temptation, God provides a way of escape. And so I think that during the first 40 days, that's the sort of temptation that Jesus got. There were thoughts that were suggested to them. He, he, to him, he would repel them. But then, after the forty days are empty, ended, then he encounters a temptation that I have never encountered, and probably you haven't either. Satan himself shows up, visibly, audibly, talking to him, and he confronts him with these three temptations. And uh, so. Jesus was, first of all, I think, tempted in a general way and then in a very specific way by Satan in person. 
And one of the lessons that we take away from this story is that Satan is a person. He's not just a, an evil force in the universe. He is a person. But then uh, <clears throat> Satan also presents him with three temptations. And the characteristics of these three temptations characterize many of the temptations that we face. And we'll look at this in more detail in the weeks to come, Lord willing. But the first temptation was to have under confidence in God. God is not going to provide you with the food that you need. You've got to take care of this yourself. That's underconfidence. And then the second temptation, throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple, is overconfidence. Uh, you, you can do crazy things and God is going to take care of you. I talked, I talked with a guy recently who, who was sinning. He knew that he was sinning, but he said, God will forgive me for it. I said, that's that is the worst kind of sin. That's a sin of presumption. To know that God has forbidden you to do something and you go right ahead and do it. That is a sin of overconfidence. And then the third temptation is a sin of misplaced confidence. When Satan says, if, you, if you'll just entrust all this business to me, I'll take care of it without all that cross. That would be a misplaced confidence. I'm going to have someone other than God try to satisfy this, this need that I have. And so those are the kind of temptations that Jesus faced, and the source of them was from the devil. How did Jesus meet each one of these temptations? Well, it may help you <clears throat> to say, to, to remember that he did not meet them fundamentally with logic. I dare say that there was no one who had a greater capacity for logic and reason than Jesus, but he does not try to reason with the devil. And then he doesn't, uh, he doesn't behave like a lawyer and say, well, there is a historical precedent for this situation, and there's a case so-and-so where this happened. He doesn't appeal to historical precedent. He doesn't appeal to scientific evidence. Instead, what does Jesus do all three times? He appeals to the Word of God. He says, it is written. The Bible says this. Now, this is very significant because it is just at this point that our first representative head plunged the race into sin. I don't believe what God has said. And so Jesus comes back and he says, I do believe what God has said. And this is the way that I'm going to repulse you. And the way that you are united to Jesus is that you also become a person who says, I believe what God has said. So I, I, I may not be able to explain it all, but I believe what God has said, and God has revealed his will in the Bible. <clears throat> and so uh, Jesus, Jesus met this attack from Satan all three times with the word of God. Now, you know, if Jesus, if Jesus uses that method of repelling temptation, don't you think that's a pretty effective way? Pretty effective way for you and me to do it? But of course, if we're going to use the Word of God as a shield against the darts of Satan, we have to know the Word of God. And so study the Word of God. Be in groups that study the Word of God. Come to a church that preaches the Word of God so that you can learn what the Bible says. And then when the attacks come, you are able to use the same, uh, the same shield that Jesus himself used in repelling the, 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 attempt, the attempts of Satan to get Jesus to sin. <clears throat> now let's wrap this up by saying, <clears throat> what does all this have to do with the resurrection? 
What this, what this has to do with the resurrection is that the resurrection was God's way of saying, at the end of all of Jesus' life, everything that you have done suits me perfectly. Everything that you have done is exactly, has been done exactly the way that I wanted it to be done. You said the things that I wanted you to say. You did the things that I wanted you to do. You suffered the things that I required you to suffer. Good job. Come back to life. And that was, that was when Jesus came back to life. In fact, it was such a, such a strong pronouncement that in the Bible, it's like God says, today you have become my son. He was always God's son, but now he is God's risen son, God's reigning son, God's son who is able to save people like me and people like you who have repeatedly succumbed to temptation. People like you and me who have repeatedly cooperated with the rebellious attitudes that Satan cultivated in the human race and and at present in us. Even after we have been converted, there's still these... There are still these little pockets of dry pine needles inside of us that, get, that easily catch fire. But thanks be to God, that no longer characterizes our lives. It's not just day after day of I am I'm opening up my heart and saying, go ahead and catch me on fire. But we're trying to keep the flame away, trying to keep the fire away. And by the grace of by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have some measure of success in that. You're not the person that you once were. If you have been born again, then you have been born again. And you have the mind of Christ. And, uh, and you are no longer under the dominion of sin. I've given you the gospel story. The gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life. He died a death that was a substitutionary death. In dying that death, he satisfied the just requirements of God. And now God raised him from the dead and offers salvation to everyone who receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you will receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you will become God's child. You will be forgiven of your sins and you'll, you'll get to go to heaven one day. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.